People are interesting creatures. We all have unique habits. We all have unique mannerisms and quirks. And our uniqueness makes at times for interesting observation. My guess is that some of you are kind of like me. You're people watchers. You like to watch people. Uh, some of my favorite places to watch people have been in airports where I've been uh, quite a few times through around the world. And uh, airports are just interesting places to watch people. Uh, and it doesn't matter really where you are in the world. There's some similarities. Uh, in my times in airports, I've seen newlyweds. You can always tell the newlyweds. They can't stop looking at each other. They, they're just kind of engulfed with one another. And then there's the business people. They've been in so many airports, there is not a, a bit of wonderment anymore. An airport is just a place to get them from point A to point B. Uh, in, in the modern era, they flip open their laptop, they're doing work, they're on their phone. When they walk through the corridors, they're just making a beeline to the next place. They really would rather not be there. Uh, sometimes, you, um, sometimes you see the weary travelers. You know, the ones that just want to go home. Uh, the ones that just want to... Uh, be done with traveling. You can see it. They're just tired. They're just kind of hoping that this next leg is the last leg. Uh, then there's the children. I love watching the children because for the children, everything in the airport is amazing. I mean, they are, it is just like, whoa, wow. And the little ones, and when you're waiting at the gate, they'll, they'll, they'll press up against the window. They want to see the pla a plane take off or one come in. And yes, I have been places where I knew before I saw them that an American work team from an American church was coming down the corridor. I was in Frankfurt Airport once, and I could hear them coming. They were loud. They were laughing. And then they came around the corner, and they all had neon-colored matching T-shirts with some kind of a slogan on them. Now, I know some of those things have changed now, and yet some of them are the same, but they all make for interesting observation. You know, when I read the Gospels, I believe Jesus was a people watcher. Jesus took the time to observe the people around him. He not only learned uh, from them as he watched them and learned about them as he watched them, he, he found them to be interesting. You read the Gospels and there are some people that Jesus sees and he reaches out to them and touches them and heals them and sometimes they don't even ask for it. You read the Gospels and there are those that he speaks to and he draws in. I think of that tender passage in John chapter 4 where the woman comes to the well in the middle of the day and Jesus engages her in conversation and draws her in. And when the time is done, she runs back to the village and says, come and meet this one who's told me everything I ever did. And that village responds to the message of the kingdom. 
and others he interacted with and he was amazed by. A chapter earlier in John 3, there's Nicodemus and at one point Jesus says, how is it you being a teacher of the law don't know these things? And there were others that were word pictures for truth. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we are going to begin in the end of chapter 20 and move our way through into the first few verses of chapter 21. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. Listen as I read this story. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So here's Jesus using a word picture that became an enduring example. But before we delve into this, I need to kind of help you understand where we've come from. If you'll remember last week, we, we wrapped up with a very disturbing word picture, a very disturbing word picture that Jesus gave as he talked to his disciples and others about the end of the world as he talked to them about how, what's going to come. And, and you remember that, that, that parable we looked at of this king that went away, or this nobleman that went away to be crowned king, and he came back, he brought his servants in to give a report, and there were people that, you know, the, the two servants really used the money to work for them, and then the one didn't really care and kind of tucked it away. And then there were the subjects that uh, opposed this appointment, and, and, and it was just a very disturbing word picture as he had those subjects actually executed. And right after that, right after that in chapter 19, we have the triumphal entry. Now, we were in Luke back on Palm Sunday, and so we talked about the triumphal entry back there. And remember, we, we showed how Luke gave us something different than the other gospel writers, because Luke tells us that as Jesus crested the hill of the Mount of Olives and began to come down to the city of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept when everybody was saying, Hail, Jesus, you know, and Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is sitting on that donkey, and he's weeping, he's sobbing, because he knew that this city, this city that God had set up as the place for God's dwelling in the temple, this city that was supposed to be the place where God would reveal himself was a city that had rejected God, had rejected Christ, would put Christ to death. It was a city that Jesus knew some 40 years later would be leveled to the ground by, Jerusalem, by the soldiers of Rome. And so he wept because he saw what was now and what was to come 
and it broke his heart. Interesting thing, in all four Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus, a ministry, a public life that lasted roughly three years, the, the week that begins with what we call Palm Sunday takes up almost 30% of all of the Gospels. One week in three years takes up almost a third of all the Gospels. This is an important week. You find some very important teaching in this week. And the, the gospel writers will tell us that Jesus goes into the temple, a place that was supposed to be a place of worship, a place that he said it was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, according to Mark's gospel. And they were turning it into a monetary bonanza. And they were using ways to make money off of the worshipers. And Jesus went in and he tore the place up. Jesus had some of his most important teaching about his authority. He teaches a parable to the Pharisees that kind of show them who they are. It's called the parable of the tenants. He talks about paying taxes to Caesar. He talks about resurrection and marriage. And, and so in all of these things, Jesus is doing some of his most important teaching on this last week. And we come to our passage today. Jesus is speaking to all the people, but especially to his disciples who are sitting right there. And as they're there in the temple, I believe they were probably in the, what was called the court of the women, the outside court, because everyone could come in there. And then there was the court of the Gentiles, then further in is the court of men, and then to the temple itself. And, and so they're there, they're watching people, and Jesus makes a statement, beware of the teachers of the law. Jesus said he, the first people he points to are the people that were noticed by everyone because they wanted to be noticed by everyone. He, they, they were people that were seeing themselves as the influencers. They were the ones who said, we are the example of religious excellence. And they came in and they commanded attention because they wanted to be noticed, and Jesus says, beware of them. The idea of being aware of them is, is be on constant alert for these people. Watch them very carefully. Be on your guard around these people. Why? Jesus gives a bunch of reasons. First, he says they like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Now, Eugene Peterson, in the late Eugene Peterson in the message, he renders that this way. They like to walk around in academic gowns. That's a humorous picture to imagine. You know, uh, I, I have, back in my closet, my academic gowns. And I've got the, the hood that I was presented several years ago. And I've worn it after my graduation, I've worn it one time when I went to a graduation and commencement at my alma mater where I got to speak to the uh, online graduates that day, the students who had come. Otherwise, it stays there in the closet. You would think it kind of funny if I walked in on a Sunday with my cap and gown and my hood and you're looking around going, what, what, what's going on? Where's graduation? 
But even worse, what if I walked around Wheaton wearing my cap and my gown? I would get noticed, definitely. And that's the word picture. They walk around in their robes that flout their education, that flout their knowledge, that flout their background. And, 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 and you know, if you've ever been to a commencement of a college, it's, it's impressive to see all the professors and from their different universities wearing their regalia. But you don't want to see that at Eclectic Cafe when you go for lunch. Jesus said they like to walk around in their flowing robes. They make a spectacle of themselves. But he goes on. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. This is more than just the fist bump or the elbow bump or the hello or the handshake. This is word used to pay homage to a superior. It carries the idea of embracing someone, fawning over them. They want others to notice them and to treat them as important. Now, I realize I'm kind of very late to the party of the series The Chosen. Some of you have watched that online. Uh, and, and I just started just not too long ago. And uh, I noticed in one episode that I was watching, it's, uh, it's the episode right after Mary Magdalene is, is healed. And uh, she's going out into the marketplace to get some flowers. And one of the young Pharisees comes in. And if you've ever seen it, all the people in the marketplace, they stop. And they kind of bow down. And they're showing him great respect. And that's what Jesus is saying here. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They love it when they walk in and everybody stops. They love it when everybody walks in and when they walk in and everybody bows. And he goes on, he says, they, they have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquet. They want the seats of honor. You know, we've already talked about that in, in that day and age, where you were seated in a banquet, where you were seated in a service meant something. You know, they're not, they weren't like us, okay, we tend to fill our churches from the back forward. But, you know, if you were somebody, you would be right up here, right up in the front. Because you were somebody and you wanted everybody to see that you were somebody. When they go to a banquet, they wanted to be as close to the head table as they could possibly be. Because that meant they were important. A couple weeks ago, Charlene and I went to the wedding of a, uh, a, a gal that we had uh, been part of. She'd been part of our tutoring at Marion Park, and it was an honor to be invited to her wedding. And uh, the wedding ceremony was God-honoring. It was beautiful. Uh, her father, uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force, a chaplain, actually led the ceremony. He did a phenomenal job, gave a godly message. It was great. And, and just imagine, though, when we get to the venue for the reception. You know, you go to the reception venue and you go to the table. There's a cards with your name, tells you what table you're to sit at. Can you imagine if I would have said, I am not sitting at table number seven. I am a pastor. I have a postgraduate degree. I will be sitting at the parents' table because that's a place of importance. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to go to the head table, but I'll be sitting with the bride's parents today. Thank you very much. Now, one of our elders was there. I could imagine he could have pulled me off the side and said, Pastor Scott, really, you're making a scene. 
But I don't think he would have gotten the chance because my wife would have grabbed me by the ear and drugged me out. You know, it's, what are you doing? That's rude. But these people love the seats of honor. You see, they were religious leaders, but they weren't servant leaders. They demanded to be noticed, demanded to be up front. They will not lower themselves to do menial things. They are important. Jesus says, be aware of them. But then he points out two other aspects of the way that they conduct their lives. As if the arrogance were not enough. Notice he says, they devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. You know the word devour. We've all used it. You've, if you've ever had any teenagers at your house, you've watched them devour a pizza. You, it, it, there's nothing left except maybe a little bit of the crust. When our kids were in college, they came home, you would have thought that the locust plague had come through. Our pantry was empty. They devoured everything. These people devour widows' houses. It's the idea of consuming. But in this context, it's the idea of exploiting. You see, the, the, the law from Moses on through was very clear. God required that the community took care of the widows. Because in the culture, the widows were the most vulnerable in the community. The widows had no means of earning income. The widows had no means of providing for themselves. And so if a widow's husband passes away and leaves her with an inheritance, or leaves her, actually it would be his son with an inheritance, the son was required to take care of his mom. That's why the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Timothy 5 that those who don't take care of widows are worse than unbelievers. It's, it's not talking about going out and providing for your family in the way we think. It's about taking care of your widowed mother. And these people somehow would put themselves in a position put themselves in a position to say, oh, I'll take care of you, Widow Jones. And then they would find a way to take over all of her assets, whatever was there. They would devour their homes. Religious leaders exploiting the vulnerable for their own advantage. And while they were doing that, for a show, they would make lengthy prayers. They make a show of their religiosity to everyone. Remember we saw that parable a couple weeks ago where Jesus said there was the, the Pharisee, you know, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other people. In fact, God, you're, you're probably really lucky to have me on your team. And they would make these showy prayers. Jesus says they will be punished most severely. God takes our hypocrisy seriously. Two things happened in my heart as I went through this. First, hopefully like you, I was very disgusted. I can see why people at that time were drawn to somebody like Jesus. Because he was real. He was empathetic. He showed compassion. He, he welcomed children. He didn't push them away. He loved on people. 
But I also took a step back. You see, when we see a passage like this, it's here for us not to just go, those guys were bad. It's here for us to say, whoa, whoa, what about me? You see, pride is so insidious and so deceitful. You see, you and I can slip into being proud without even knowing it. We can go from kind of a healthy self-evaluation, hey, these are the gifts and abilities God has given me, to a smug pride in nothing flat. And even when I do something behind the scenes, something that is service-oriented, something that nobody else ever sees, I have to check my motives. And I have to ask the Holy Spirit to make sure that He is helping me to do the right thing for the right reasons because we can get so quickly proud. And we need to be careful to evaluate our motives. Now Jesus is sitting there watching these Pharisees come in, watching them in their flowing robes, watching them all, and He happens to look over and there was uh, an area where people would bring their gifts. You know, in, in the temple area, the, the receptacles for the gifts were called trumpets because they looked like the bell of a trumpet. And uh, they were placed throughout the temple, and there was usually somebody there kind of keeping an eye on things. And, and so people would come in, and they would put their money in. Now, this wasn't, they didn't have bills. It was all hard coinage. So when your money went into the trumpet, it kind of made a little bit of a noise. And so Jesus is watching, and, and he sees the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Sometimes there were officials near the trumpets who would count the money as it went in. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, they may have been in the women's court because this woman could come in, the woman that's going to be here. But they wanted people, some of the, the rich kind of wanted to be seen. When I was a kid, I was probably about 13. My dad was a pastor. Somebody came to him once. I don't know what the reason was, but they ended up giving him a wad of cash. And they said, I want you to put this in the offering next week, preacher. Well, my dad came home, and, and so he wanted to get us kids into the mix. So he gave each of us a $20 bill. And then, and, and, and he was joking, but it landed with me. He said, now kids, when you put that in the offering plate, I want you to snap it. You know how you can snap a bill? And just lay it in. Boy, that landed with me. So I'm sitting there with my buddies, you know, all these 12, 13-year-old kids. And the offering plate comes, and I didn't have it out ahead of time. I waited. I made a show of it. I dig in my pocket. I get that 20 out. Snap, snap, snap. Laid it in. And they're like, dude, where'd you get that? And it may or may not have been said, there's more where that came from, boys. I wanted, you know what, for a moment I had the satisfaction of being the guy. It didn't last very long, but it did, for that moment it was like, yeah. And they hadn't, you know, it was crazy. That's what's going on here. That's my image when I think about these individuals coming with their gold and their silver and 
dumping it in in the loud sound. Oh, look at that gift. Can you imagine this widow? You know, how did he know she was a widow? Well, you can, you can tell someone that's poor and by herself, not with a man. And she comes along and she takes out two coins. For our purposes, let's say two pennies. And she kind of, I can just see her kind of quietly dropping them in and just moving on her way, hoping nobody would notice, hoping nobody would make fun of her, hoping no one would scoff at her. But Jesus saw. You know, maybe her husband was poor and left her with nothing. Maybe he left her with a dowry and she had been one that the, that the religious leaders had exploited. In the depths of her heart, she knew one thing. She had God. And she knew that God was her provider. She knew what the psalmist had said, that God says, I am the husband to the husbandless. And she trusted God. So she came that day and she gave all she had to God, not as a test, not as a, a way of saying, oh yeah, do with this. It was a way of saying, I am depending on you. And Jesus makes a stunning evaluation. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put, on, put in all she had to live on. Let me put it another way. They gave from their abundance. They gave a lot, but they kept a lot for themselves. Uh, they really may not have missed what they gave. In human terms, their gift was significant. Do you remember a few years ago when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett came out with this challenge to other billionaires? And, and they committed, those two men committed to giving half of their wealth away to charity before they died. And, and you know, I applaud that. And yet when you think about one of them being worth right now about $128 billion, and another being worth close to $100 billion, I think I could scrimp by on $50 billion. I think I could make it. I think I could, I think I could make an ends meet. So, yes, it's great that they gave that, but in human terms, they still have a lot left over to live a pretty good lifestyle. These people gave a lot, but they didn't feel it. There was no sense of dependency. There was a sense of, look at me. She gave all she had to live on, and in so doing, put herself squarely on the shoulders of God. Today is a, a one-point sermon. In a minute, I want you to see a phrase that I ran across as I was preparing. When I read this sentence, I just stopped. I, 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 I literally put the book down and just sat there and mulled it over in my head. I, I don't know if the man who wrote it knew how profoundly it would affect somebody else. It's from uh, the New International Version, the NIV application commentary on Luke. And it's written, that particular section of the commentary is written by Dr. Daryl Bach. 
And Dr. Bach said this, God does not see things as we do. He does not count. He weighs. God does not count. He weighs. Now let me leave you with my understanding of that phrase. We count. We measure. We add up. We look at the amount one gives and we call them a a good giver. We look at the car someone drives and we say they must be successful. We look at the degrees behind somebody's name and we call them educated and we go get their books and read them if they've written books. We count. We count how many people are at a given meeting. We count budgets. We count buildings. We count. God doesn't count. God's not impressed by our materialism. God's not impressed by our academics. God's not impressed by the things that we think are impressive. Now, it's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to be educated. It's not wrong to make a good living. It's just that God does not put his emphasis there. He doesn't count the things we count. He weighs. God weighs our heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. The people are counting. Ooh, look at what he gave. Ooh, look at what he gave. Huh, look at what she gave. Jesus is weighing. Look at his motives. Look how he wants to be seen. Look how she depends on God. He weighs. He weighs our heart. He weighs our motives. He weighs our empathy. He weighs our compassion. He weighs how we treat the most vulnerable in our midst. He weighs how we treat one another. He weighs how we talk to people when they're not around. He weighs how we use the funds we did not give to his work. Remember, and I've mentioned this before, I don't think the question should ever be, how much should I give? I think the better question that comes from a book entitled God and Money, How We Found Religious Freedom at Harvard Business School, is not how much should I give, it's how much do I need to keep. Because if reality, if all of I, everything I have, everything, my skills, my abilities, my money, everything is God's, then it's already His. How much do I need to make it? God doesn't weigh God doesn't count what we give. He weighs what we think we need to keep. God weighs how we are when we're just with our family. Is our image out there different than the person we are at home? We count the externals and we make our evaluations there. God weighs the heart and that's where he makes his evaluation. I would challenge you today to let this phrase soak in. Work to stop counting. Begin weighing. Ask yourself the why questions. Why am I doing this? What's my motive? Why am I really cultivating that friendship? What do I think I'm going to gain from it? Why am I keeping that item? 
Why do I give? Why did I get upset when I wasn't noticed? I'm going to tell you why questions are hard when you ask them of yourself. Personal why questions are inconvenient. Personal why questions are uncomfortable. But they are the questions of weighing. God does not count. He doesn't see things the way we see them. God weighs. On that day, a few days before he went and gave his life on the cross for your sins and mine, on that day, Jesus did not count. He weighed. And a poor widow who gave all she had in dependency upon God tipped the scales. And she is still our example today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't see things the way we do. Thank you that you don't count, you don't add up, you don't, you don't evaluate the way we do. Because if you did, so many of us would be left wanting. Thank you that you weigh. Thank you that there's level ground at the cross and it's there that you weigh our heart, our desire to follow you, our desire to put our faith in Jesus. May this be a week in which we learn what it means to not count, but to weigh and to start to see things the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen.